following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, that's page number 840. If you're using one of those Bibles in the seats there in front of you. Good to see all of you this morning. We're going to read these first 20 verses here of Mark chapter 5, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Mark writes that they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You bow your heads. Lord, we come again this morning desiring to see you as king. And so as we have been doing now for several weeks, I pray that this morning our time in your word will make this kingdom more clear. Help us to understand even better today how your rule and reign is expanding into every sphere that nothing can stand against you, that we serve a God who is king already, but whose kingdom is still coming in our midst to this very day. And so I pray, Lord, that as I speak, you will take these feeble words of mine and that your spirit will apply them to our hearts. Help us to see you. That's, That's what we need today, to see you as the king over all, to see our need for you, to see how you have conquered evil and that our hope and our trust can be in you alone through this. So we give you our time. We ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I had a, um, a little funny experience this week. It was Wednesday, 
it was about 9.30 at night, and we were just putting our kids to bed. They had just gotten in bed. In fact, I was getting ready to go into, I think it was Hannah's room, to give her a kiss goodnight and you know, do all the nighttime routine stuff when the phone rings. And when the phone rings at 9.30 at night in our house, it can only be one of two people. Typically, it's either my mother or Jamie's mother calling, because only mothers would call that late or call earlier than 8 o'clock, in my opinion. So don't call us before 8 or after 9. That was a little warning for you all. Uh, so I'm like, it's got to be my mom or, or Jamie's mom. So I go look at the phone. It's my mom. I pick up. I'm, I'm a little annoyed, I'll be honest with you, just because I don't like phone calls late. And I don't know why she's calling. So I answer the phone. I'm like, hello? And instantly I hear this panicked voice on the other end. You've got to come over to my apartment right now. I'm like, why, mom? What's wrong? There's a snake in my kitchen. And instantly all I could do is start laughing. <laughs> just it, hearing her voice how panicked it was, thinking of the situation, knowing my mother and her great fear of anything that creeps and crawls. My dad always used to joke that if he ever wanted to kill my mother, he would simply put her in the car, go down the interstate at like 70 miles an hour, and then open up a jar of bees, and she would voluntarily get out of the car. And he'd be like, I don't know why she got out, officer. She just left. Uh, My mom is terrified of these things. And so I just I don't know. I'm a horrible son. It struck me as funny, and I'm just laughing hard. And my mom, still in her panicked voice, is like, it's not funny. Come over here now. I've called everybody. No one's up. you got to come now. And I just keep laughing harder. And so I'm like, okay, I'll be there in a minute. I hang up. Jamie is looking at me from across the living room going, what is wrong? What happened? And I'm like, there's a snake in mom's kitchen. And I just keep laughing. So I'm like, you want to come? She's like, sure, why not? So we get the kids up. And all four of us, you know, it's a field trip now, (laughs) all four of us go over to her apartment. So her apartment's like two minutes from our house. So I pull in, and she's got her, uh, she lives on the first floor, and her her apartment faces the the parking lot. And so she's got her door open. I can see inside, and there's another man who I've never seen before who's now in her apartment as well. And so I get out, and she's she's in her, like, nightgown thing, whatever she covers up in that like old people wear, like the long ones like that. And uh, my mom's 70, okay? Some of you are like, hey, wait a minute. I struck a little too close to home there, sorry. Uh, I told Jamie she was never allowed to wear those things. I saw too many of them growing up. I'm like, no. So uh, mom's at the door. I, op- I come out, and she's like, get in here. So I'm walking in, and there's this guy. I, I don't know this man. He's one of my mother's neighbors. I don't think she had ever met him prior to this night. She had met his wife, and so she went over and knocked on their door. After she called me, she was like in this much of a panic, and he comes over. And so if, if where the snake is is here, let's just say he is standing, oh, probably about here with a broom and a bucket. <laughs> and he's like this. So I walk in, and I have no clue what I'm going to see. So he's like, I'm watching to make sure it doesn't go under, like, the stove or the refrigerator or something. And I turn the corner, and he's, oh, and I, on the way in, he goes, he goes and it's, I, think it's some, I think it's poisonous because it's striking. And I go around the corner, and here's a snake. <laughs> Maybe that? I don't know. It's right about, the, it's like, little guy. He's all, like, half curled up, and he is. He's striking. At nothing, but he's just doing it. I think something was wrong with him. I don't know if mom had stepped on him or what, but he seemed like he was injured and he's striking, and the guy is way back there. So I walk in the kitchen and I go right up to him. I'm looking at him like this, and here's Nathaniel and Hannah there with me. The man runs out of the apartment. 
like it was an anaconda about to come. And he runs out of the apartment, and I'm like, uh, can we at least have your bucket? Like, I just, so I get a pair of tongs, and I pick up the snake, and I put him in the bucket, and I proceed to walk outside. And the man's about 30 feet away from me. He's like, I don't like snakes. Keep it away from me. And he's like, are you guys going to kill it? Both mom and the man are asking me this. And I'm like, no, I'm going to throw him in the ditch and let him go do whatever snakes do in the ditch. So I go throw him in there. And, and that was the end of it, except we just were cracking up at both my mother and this man's great fear of this thing. And, and watching that man and my mom keep their distance from that snake because of their fear reminded me a little bit of our, our next scene here in Mark chapter 5. Today we're looking at scene number two out of three uh, different scenes here that together show that this kingdom that Jesus has been talking about since Mark chapter 4 verse 1 uh, has come, it's real, and that nothing can stand against it. We, we started looking at these three scenes last week when we looked at scene number one in Mark 4 35 to 41, and that's the story of Jesus calming the sea. And I began our time together last week by noting that one of the, the problems that I think we face when we come to these kinds of stories is that we're tempted to read them in an encapsulated, disjointed kind of way. I gave that a name. Does anyone remember it? Thank you, one person. Cheryl, the teacher, gets it. The flannel graph effect. Remember that? That this idea that, that when we were children, we were taught Bible stories in the, like on flannel graphs as if the story was encapsulated. There was nothing before it and, and nothing after it. It just kind of was. Just that was it. That's all there is, this one little story. And those stories were never, ever tied together in any kind of way to give us a clue as to the larger story that maybe the gospel writers and the Holy Spirit himself wanted us to understand. So in last week's story of Jesus calming the sea, you know, as a kid, whenever I heard that story, I just always believed that the, the point of the story was to show us that Jesus is really amazing and powerful, right? And he can, he can calm the sea whenever he wants. Well, certainly that's the case. He, his ability to calm the sea is a, a primary component of that story. But as I indicated to you last week, I don't think that's the primary point. Mark's not simply trying to show you that Jesus has so much power he can make wind and, and sea do what he wants. No, he's trying to show you something a little bit larger. And so as I shared that story last week, what I try to do is connect it to the larger story of what Mark is doing here in this overall section about teaching us about the kingdom of God. That here in this scene, the wind and the sea are acting as a danger, as a threat to this kingdom that's supposed to be coming and and. Nothing's going to stop that kingdom. Nothing. No wind, no sea, no storm can stop it. Nothing is going to, to stand against God's plan to establish, establish his kingdom, and especially not the forces of chaos. And I'm going to pause and just ask a question. Did anyone, don't answer this out loud, just think it in your head. Did anyone pick up on the repeated use of the word chaos last week? See, that wasn't, a, a word chosen by accident. Because as I was studying that, and I didn't point this out last week, I'm, I'm going to do it today. As I was studying that last week, I couldn't help but keep being reminded of our study of Genesis, for all of you who are here for Genesis. Because if you think back to Genesis 1, when we first come to this earth, this world that God is going to make, in what state is it in? It's in a state of chaos, right? right? It's, it's, uh, there's formless, it's void, there's darkness over the face of the deep, there's these waters, and it's out of this chaotic scene that God is going to create this world. He's going to bring life 
in where chaos had existed previously, when the world has become completely overcome by wickedness, and he wants to destroy it and start again there in Genesis 6 through 8. What does he do again? He brings water. He brings chaos, returning the world to its original state. And and out of that chaos again, then, he brings life and, and creation from it. And isn't it interesting that as you look at this scene, it's all happening in the dark, right? It's evening. And it's right here on water, and that's the danger that's facing the kingdom, this chaos that's there in Jesus' face and in the disciples' face. It reminds me a lot of Genesis 1, a lot of Genesis 6 through 8, and that Jesus can overcome the wind and the sea rather than being overcome by it reminds me of God's ability in there in Genesis to overcome chaos and establish life where lifelessness had existed before. So Jesus is king over chaos, okay? That, that's what we saw last week. None, none of, of what this physical world can do will in any way, shape, or form prevent God from bringing his rule and reign back into the life of his people. And so, so that was what we saw last week. Today we're going to move on to scene number two, and that's the story of Jesus casting out the legion of demons. And like Last week, I want you to do the same thing that you did then, where I asked you up front, please, as best you can, throw away everything you've ever thought about this story. I mean, as much as you can, just like wipe it from your mind right now. Please do so, because I want us to walk through this with some fresh eyes to understand this story for what I think it really is. It's just another attempt by Mark to show us that absolutely nothing, nothing will stop this plan of Jesus to bring God's kingdom to pass here in this world. Mark begins the scene by saying that they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And remember that prior to uh, scene number one, Jesus had been doing what? He had been teaching on the seashore. They're probably outside of Capernaum. And if you remember where Capernaum is, up on the northwest corner there of the Sea of Galilee. And so he's probably up there near his home base in that uh, when chapter four begins. And at the end of his teaching, he tells the disciples to get into the boat so that they can go to the other side of the sea. And it's on this voyage across that the storm comes upon them. Everything we read there in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, happens as they're crossing the sea. Well, in chapter 5, verse 1 now, they've reached the other side, and they landed at a place that Mark here calls the country of the Gerasenes. But as you read some of the other gospel accounts, you'll see some of them refer to it as Gadara. Some of them refer to it as Gergesa. These are other cities, other names for the same little region down here on the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And you may notice on the map that this is in an area that is known as the Decapolis. And if you remember anything from Latin, Greek, or maybe English, you probably figured out that the word Decapolis means ten cities. Okay, It was a region that was primarily Gentile in nature that was pretty much defined by these ten major cities that were here on the other side of the, of the Jordan. And yeah, there were Jewish people living over there, but it was certainly not a Jewish area. And if you need any proof of that, simply look down in your text at verse 11 and notice what kind of farming is going on here in the land of, of the Gerasenes. It's pig farming, right? There's a, there's a herd of pigs there uh, feeding on the hillside. So whereas on the other side of the sea, you might see herds of sheep feeding on the hillsides. Here on this side of the sea, you have a a herd of pigs. And if you weren't aware, uh, pork is not the other white meat for the Jewish people, right? 
I mean, they, they detest it. Pigs are unclean animals that are forbidden by the Old Testament law for them to eat. And I'm just going to make a quick observation that has nothing to do with this. But how many of you um, have ham at Christmas? Like, that's traditional for you. Okay. How about for Easter? How about for both? Have you ever stopped and thought about the fact that that's like giving the ultimate religious finger to the Jewish people? If you think about that for a minute, like not only are we going to celebrate this, the birth and death of the Savior, the Messiah you rejected, but we're going to do it by eating him. <laughs> we're not trying to be offensive, but let's face it, that is pretty offensive if you stop and think about it. So that had nothing to do with anything. It's just on my mind. I digress. This, this is the area that Jesus has come to here. It's a primarily uh, Gentile area that most Jews would, would generally avoid. And Mark tells us that when Jesus got out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. And again, just, just try to picture the setting. I, I don't know if you do, a, do this or practice this when you're reading the Gospels, but I would encourage you to remember that there's stories on purpose. They're designed to bring images to your mind. And so when you're reading these stories, stop and picture them. Think about them. So picture this one. The, the place where you bury people is always going to be away from the, the, the residential commercial hub of, of your area. It's going to be out in the country, removed from daily life. Here it's near the sea. And this is the spot where this particular man who has this unclean spirit, in other words, a demon, this is where he has been living. And just to you know, state the obvious, it's kind of an unusual setting, is it not? And so Mark describes him in the situation here a little bit to us to help us understand him better. He says that the man lived among the tombs. He's not just there visiting like someone who died. No, this is his home, this place of death. And apparently at some point in the past, he says that people had tried to intervene to help him. And I would assume they're trying to help him because they're trying to subdue him, to, to chain him and, and Again, I'm assuming that why would you chain such a guy? Well, you'd probably chain him so he's not a danger to himself or to others as well. And as you can see here, this attempt to bind him had occurred more than one time because Mark says that he had often, often been bound with chains, but to no effect. Because apparently the demons inside him gave him super strength. And if you're curious about what that means, like how could, how could this man just break shackles in pieces and pull chains apart? I don't know. I picture Superman doing it when I think of it. it but somehow, apparently, because of the demons inside of him, he has the ability to just break these things apart. That's the only explanation. He wrenches the chains apart. He breaks the shackles in pieces. And no one, Mark emphasizes, had the strength to subdue him. And so, unable to be restrained for his own safety and for the safety of others, they, they just let him go. They just let him go, live in the tombs, go live in the mountains, kind of do your own thing out there away from the rest of us. Keep him at kind of arm's length, probably because they're afraid of him. Keep him away from them. And Mark says that as he's out there night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he's always crying out and cutting himself with with stones, again, can you picture this scene? A wild man, demon-possessed, naked, wild hair, long fingernails. He's covered in scars, no doubt, from all the cutting. Maybe blood, maybe scabs, dirt, screaming, moaning, crying in agony. It's this man, Mark says, that when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And I want to point out something at this moment before we look at it, just so you understand what's about to come, that 
the next few verses we're going to read are some of the most interesting you're probably ever going to find in the New Testament in terms of an interchange between God and the forces of evil, okay, in any sort. There's a few others, if you look in the Old Testament, but particularly with Jesus and, and dealing with demons, there's no other interchange, no other conversation that's going to be quite like this one. So notice what happens. When the man falls down at Jesus' feet, the demon cries out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And notice three things here about what he's doing. One, the reason he says this to Jesus is because, if you look at verse 8, Jesus is commanding the demon to come out of him. So you've got to picture it as the guy's running up. Jesus is like, come out of him, you unclean spirit. As Jesus is saying this, the demon is now replying back. And this is really unusual because in the past when we've seen Jesus cast out demons, as soon as he says, come out of him or whatever, what happens? The demon comes out. In this case, though, he tries to engage Jesus in conversation. He doesn't leave right away. That's really unusual. Number two, notice the way that he refers to Jesus here. He calls him by his full name and title, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And other demons have recognized that he's the Son of God in the past, but the way this one uses his name and his title, the way it's worded here in Greek particularly, has been interpreted by some as an attempt on the demon's part to kind of play an angle with Jesus here. It's like, hey, listen, um, you and I, we know each other, okay? I know who you are. You're Jesus, son of the most high God. Let, let's kind of talk here, buddy. It, it, it's as if he's trying to work something. He's trying to level the playing field out a little bit in his conversation. And so uh, as if this knowledge somehow will change Jesus's approach. Number three, notice that he basically invokes God's mercy, kindness, and goodness in asking that Jesus not torment him. When he says here to him, I adjure you, he's actually asking Jesus to swear by God that he will not torment him. Now swear to God, okay? Listen, <laughs> swear to God for me, you're not going to torment me. As if because of God's kindness and mercy and goodness that Jesus should treat the demon differently than perhaps the demon expects to be treated. That seems to be the sense that you get as you study this out. All, all of this is unprecedented in terms of Jesus' interaction with other demon-possessed people. It just, it just doesn't happen. But, but what happens next is stranger still. Notice that Jesus responds. Jesus asks the demon, what is your name? And when you see questions like this uh, coming out of Jesus' mouth, it's not that he doesn't know his name. It's part of engaging him in this I guess you could call it a game if you wanted to of what's going on here in this particular scene. The demon has used Jesus' name, and so Jesus now asks him to reveal his name. And the demon replies with words that if you've grown up in church at all, you are very familiar with, my name is Legion, for we are many. And I'll just you know, stop and ask a real quick uh, little history question and then a trivia question. What's a legion? Well, a legion is a particular-sized Roman uh, regiment. It's, it describes a particular composite, composition and size of a, of a Roman military regiment. Now, here's the trivia question. How big is a legion? How many people? How many soldiers? How many? What would you say? A thousand? Anyone else? That's wrong? 
Most people, I'll just throw it out there for one I heard growing up, I've heard people say over and over and over again that a Roman legion is 2,000. No. People get the 2,000 number because there's 2,000 pigs. And maybe you think of Roman soldiers as pigs. I don't know what your personal preferences or thought on Roman soldiers, but regardless, whoever said six over here is right. A Roman legion is 6,000 foot soldiers and 120 horsemen. So if you ever hear anyone again say that there's 2,000 demons inside the guy, just laugh at him, okay? Just like you don't know anything, all right? So that's the, that's the best way to always approach people. So, so having said all of that, having said all of that, let's not assume that there's 6,000 demons inside of him plus 120 horse demons, okay? Let's, <laughs> let's not try to get that specific in it. All he's saying back to Jesus is there are a lot of us in here, okay? There's a lot of us in this particular guy. I have no clue of what exactly the number is, and I don't even know that legion is the real name of this demon, as if there's still a legion out there today that you might interact with at some point. You know, he, He's giving an answer that is right within the context. It would be as if someone came to the door, and we're all standing in the hallway out there, and they said, who are you? And said, we are Cornerstone. Well, that's right within the context, but what happens if Cornerstone ceases to exist? Well, we're not Cornerstone anymore, right? We would never answer that way. At this particular moment, in this particular context, the demon says, I am, I am legion. And after answering Jesus' question, the demons begin to beg earnestly that they not be sent out of the country. And as you, I can't really explain that comment any more than I can say this right here, that as you read through the Gospels, you get the sense that demons don't, do not like to be disembodied. They don't want to wander. You know, you see that, that wording elsewhere. They don't want to wander in dry places. They want to find a, a home, a residence of some sort. They, they want to inhabit something. And so they ask Jesus then, because they don't want to just be sent out to nothing, they ask him if they can enter that herd of pigs that was feeding nearby on the hillside. And so Jesus agrees, and the demons come out of the man. They enter the pigs, about 2,000 pigs in all. And then the pigs rush down the steep bank into the sea, and they drown. And again, let's stop and make a couple of observations about that particular uh, comment there. Number one, I used to think when I'd read this that the demons caused the pigs to do this. And I would then stop and go, well, what was the point then of going into the pigs? I mean, if you didn't want to be sent out of the country, you didn't want to just be sent out of the guy, why would you go into a bunch of pigs to make them drown? And why wouldn't you have killed the guy then? Like, why kill the pigs? And not, like, I had all these questions. Well, after studying it this week, I don't think the demons did that to the pigs. I don't think that's what Mark is indicating at all. Actually, I think it's the other way around. I think the pigs did this to the demons. As the demons come into the, the pigs, it's like the pigs went mad, and they just go throwing themselves off the cliff like lemmings, probably in a way that the demons maybe didn't even expect, which, if that's correct, and I think it is, leads me to the second observation that it's an ironic ending to this story of Jesus' victory over these demons. Because if you're Jewish and you read this, I think you chuckle at this point, you know? I really think you'd laugh. It's like a bunch of unclean spirits go into a bunch of unclean animals, and they all drown in the sea. It's like a, it's like a punchline of a funny Jewish joke right there, okay? It really is. It, except that it's not a punchline. If there's a joke on anyone here, it seems to be that the joke is on the demons. Because, I mean, they did everything they could think of to avoid what they 
thought was coming to them. They fell down before Jesus. They called him by his name and title. They asked him to swear by God that he wouldn't torment them. They asked him not to send them out of the country. They asked to be allowed to go into the pigs. And the funny thing is, is that Jesus gives them everything they want. Everything. Every single request is answered. And just when it seems like the situation is going to work out okay for the demons, pigs all go down and drown themselves in the sea. And the demons then end up with none of the things, none of the things that they had wanted. In fact, their own choices and desires lead to their destruction. Mark writes, when the herdsmen watching the pigs and they see all this happen, they flee back to the city. They tell everyone what happened. The people of the city begin heading that way to see it for themselves. But when they get there to this scene where all this has occurred, what they see is more terrifying to them than what they probably had expected because they see the man, the one who had the legion of demons. He is now sitting there with Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And Mark tells us now the people are afraid. Again, talk about irony, right? That doesn't make sense at all in our way of thinking. You think that they would be happy to finally see this man in this condition. They had bound him multiple times, again, I assume, in a kind way. Otherwise, they would have just killed him when they had the chance, one of those points. But they're trying to help him, I assume. So you think now they'd be really happy to see that finally, finally, he's been set free. And quite opposite, now they're, now they're terrified. And after hearing the story from those who saw it, Mark says that they now began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Again... This story is full of this. Talk about irony. Because Jesus cast out the demons, and because he did that, the people now cast Jesus out. They don't want him to, to stay there. And so he agrees, but as he's getting into the boat, the man comes and begs that he might be with him. And this is the final twist in the story, because here you see the one and only request in the entire story that Jesus doesn't grant. He grants the demons' request, he grants the people's request, but the man now asks to come with him so he can be with him, and Jesus denies it. Rather, he tells him, go home. Go to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The demons are trying to base or bargain with Jesus based on God's mercy, but this was the man who really receives it. And Mark tells us that the man obeyed. He went away and he began to proclaim, not just in his town, but in the entire Decapolis, in this entire Gentile area, all how much Jesus had done for him. Mark knows that everyone marveled. What, what is Mark showing us here in this particular story? Because, you know, again, of that flannel graph effect, I think most of us, when we read the story, we we're not thinking about what came before. We're not thinking about what comes after. We're just picturing the story as, a, as an encapsulated, disjointed kind of thing. So we're like, wow, that's a lot of demons. Like, that's our big takeaway from the story, right? That's a lot of demons inside him. I wonder what that felt like, you know? Or, or we'll be like, man, think of all those pigs. That was like 100 Christmases and Easter's for us right there, right there. For No, no one thought that, you know? We, we, we make no attempt, folks, and I just keep chiding us on this, and hopefully it will, the more I say it, the more it will ring true. Many of us make no attempt to connect these stories in any kind of way that would show us some larger purpose to what's being written and recorded for us. So, so just like last week, let's do that. What is the larger context about which Mark is, or in which Mark is writing? It's about the kingdom of God. 
from Mark chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to chapter 6, verse 6, this is going to be the main point, the kingdom of God, to show us how, like for example, in that last story, that Jesus is greater than anything in this physical world, that he is in fact the king over chaos, that there is nothing within the forces of chaos of this world that can in any way, shape, or form thwart the plan of God to bring his rule and reign back. Nothing. Well, here now in this story, I think Mark is showing us that the power of Jesus is not just greater than the things of this physical world, it's greater than anything in the spiritual world as well, and that Jesus is king over evil. Think about this with me for a moment. Jesus has cast out demons before, right? And he's going to do it again later, but this situation is really over the top. I mean, really over the top. Because here it's not just one demon, it's a whole legion of demons. And and these demons are strong. I mean, no one could bind them. No one could in any way defeat them. They're knowledgeable. They know Jesus' name. They, They know how to use it. They're conniving. They try to leverage God's mercy against Jesus. They're going to interact with him. They're going to try to force him to do their bidding. And Jesus seemingly goes along with it. He seemingly agrees. And for a moment, just for a moment, you think that maybe... Maybe evil is going to win. And then, in a surprise twist that no one was expecting, Jesus wins. Boom. Because all of a sudden we see that the the spread of God's kingdom into enemy territory, it cannot be overcome either by their strength, number, or plans. Everything that they put into motion that they thought would get them what they want turned against them, and they are destroyed. Jesus wins. This Does that remind you of any other story yet to come in Mark's gospel? I mean, let's just think about another story, perhaps, where the spiritual forces of evil are going to try something similar. So this time it won't just be one demon, nor will it be a legion of them. It will be Satan himself trying to bring something to pass, where rather than being on the defensive against Jesus' power as they are in this story, they actually take an offensive role against Jesus, try to take him on head on where they're going to use others to bind Jesus, where they're going to connive and plan and scheme and interact with him in an attempt to get him to do what they want. A story where Jesus will seemingly go along with it for a time and where for three days you think that maybe, just maybe, the forces of evil have actually won. And then, when you least expect it, a surprise twist. Boom. He rises from the dead. Jesus wins, and you see that the spread of God's kingdom into enemy territory is not just limited to the the banks of the shore of the Sea of Galilee, but it's going to spread into every nation on earth. In this scene that we've looked at today, Jesus has been shown to be king over evil. But listen, folks, in the gospel, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you see that Jesus will deal an ultimate blow, an ultimate final blow to the power of Satan himself. He will defeat him, and it will be the greatest victory the world has ever seen. This is what's to come. Yes, the story gives us just a foretaste, just a, just a foretaste of what we will see as the story of Jesus unfolds as he ultimately conquers evil. But I think it also gives us a good reminder of, of how God pursues those in evil's grasp as well. I mean, think about it. This man did nothing to seek or deserve Jesus' help. Nothing. Think about it also that the, the man resisted Jesus, well, the demon resisted Jesus, the people around 
Jesus all resist him. And yet Jesus crosses the sea just to come to him. Nothing else happens on that side of the sea. He gets in the boat that night. He goes across. He has this encounter. He leaves. And as you stop and think about this, you have this beautiful picture of how God pursues us who were also in evil's grasp. Us who were under the power of the prince of the power of the air. We were, we were his children. We were his followers. We were enslaved to the king of evil. What does God do? He pursues us. When we didn't pursue him, he pursues us and he sets us free and he makes us his disciples. And I would remind you this morning that God continues to pursue people in this way. He uses us to do that, to continue to invade enemy territory to this day, to spread the good news of of his ability to set the captives free to this very day. He sets them free through the good news of his son. And he makes them his disciples who then, guess what he does? Go home and tell everyone how much the Lord has done for you. Tell them how much mercy he has had on you. That's, all, that's our message. If you ever struggle thinking, well, I don't know how to talk to people about Jesus, that's it. You just go and you just tell them how much the Lord has done for you. You just go and you just tell them the mercy that he has had on you. And as we go out spreading that message, we do so knowing We do so knowing that we're invading enemy territory every day in our offices and in our neighborhoods and sometimes in our very homes. We're invading enemy territory and he's not going to like it. He's going to resist it. But we have on our side the one who's already conquered evil. He's already conquered evil because Jesus is king over evil and all of our faith is in him. Will you bow your heads with me for a moment? Jesus, we praise you for being king over evil, for dealing these blows to Satan. All of us in this room were, maybe some still are, captives to Satan and captives to sin. We were not seeking you, we were not pursuing you, and yet you and your great love and mercy came to us and set us free. And for many of us in this room this morning, we are gathered together today as those who have been set free. Satan is now defeated. He continues to fight. He continues to try to hold on. But your kingdom is coming still. And there is no sphere, no reign, no realm where it will not come. And so now, while we understand Satan's power, we do not fear it because we have you on our side. And so, Father, please help us to be bold as we go into all of these realms of enemy territory that are around us, to bring the message of what you have done for us, of your great mercy shown to us, to those people, so that you can take that simple message, this truth, this power, and set them free as well. Help us to be faithful as we do that, like this man who went through all the Decapolis, spreading everywhere, and people simply marveled. May there be many around us who marvel at the goodness of God to us based on, on what we share with them. So Lord, thank you today for your word. Thank you for its power. Thank you for conquering all. We place our faith, our trust in you alone this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.